about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. And while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron and wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters and astrologers and diviners, diviners, Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride... He was, disposed from, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was given away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. 
and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven and he, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Uh, The second reading is from Luke, chapter 14, um, starting at verse 12 and through to verse um, 24 which is found on page 1,488 of the Large Print Bibles and 848 of the Pew Bibles. So Luke chapter 14. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet... He sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited get a taste of my banquet." Well, good evening. My name's Roger. I'm one of the ministers here. Great to be with you here this evening um, and to be looking at Daniel with you again. Um, Just before I start, I thought I'd mention, uh, regarding your prayers this week, um, 
I've built up a, a number of relationships with people around this community, which has been fantastic, um, and sadly one of them's died. So one of my neighbours died uh, last week, and uh, they've invited me to come and be part of the funeral and actually take the funeral, uh, which I consider to be actually a tremendous privilege. It's um, he wasn't particularly someone who followed Jesus, but I get the opportunity to speak to uh, his friends and his family. So I value your prayers this week. It's happening on Friday. Um, it's, it is just a great privilege to be involved, though. That's one of the things I'm going to miss uh, as a minister in a church regularly. Um, as some of you know, I'm moving on. And uh, yeah, just a great privilege. So let me pray. Father God, you're a good and gracious God, and we thank you for your kindness to us. And we thank you for the privilege we have of serving you in so many different ways. Uh, Father, we ask that as we come to your word uh, this evening, that you would speak to us, uh, that you would help us hear what you have to say to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things our Year 11 uh, class looked forward to was the last days of Year 12. Every year we had observed Year 12, and traditionally what would happen is at the end of Year 12, students were allowed to let their hair down and uh, basically just go wild, really. And so the year before us, if my memory serves me correct, uh, did a huge stage presentation. It was a boys' school. A huge stage presentation with lots of phallic symbols. Um, before they got to the stage, however, what they'd done is built a huge coffin with HSC on the side of it, and they'd put it on their shoulders and marched it down from Hurstville down to Bexley on their shoulders and held up all the traffic. They were legends. But of course, when it came to us, the school just went, nothing like that is going to happen again. And so we felt really aggrieved. We felt like we weren't going to have our fun. We'd been looking forward to this all these years. And so we thought, we're going to be defiant. We're going to get them back. We're going to do something together. And so we ended up bringing our lawnmowers to school to cut the beloved oval, which we weren't allowed to play on, and we played American Pie as, lo as loud as we could in the school quadrangle. Um, to be honest, even as the day unfolded, or as the day unfolded, we just realised how pathetic we were. Um, just a really pathetic defiance. And it was just a total embarrassing flop. In fact, that's my memory of the end of year 12. It was just like an embarrassing flop. And our defiance just sounded ridiculous. And perhaps you've had moments like that in your own life where you've, you've been defiant and then you just realised how foolish you look, how ridiculous you look in the light of your defiance. Well, that's what we're going to see tonight. And the situation is far more serious, actually. We're going to see a defiant king but he's going to be extremely foolish in what he has to do. So we've been journeying our way through the book of Daniel and we come to the king Belshazzar in chapter 5. You might like to open it and follow through as we continue. And as we begin the story in chapter, chapter 5 verses 1 to 4, we're introduced to the kind of defiance that Belshazzar is showing. He gives a great banquet with a thousand nobles, um, and he brings his concubines and his wives along. Um, in the middle of the banquet, he orders that the gold and silver go goblets that have been bought from Jerusalem, uh, from Nebuchadnezzar, um, be brought into the party, into the great banquet, so that the 
concubines and wives and all those nobles who are present can drink from these goblets. And so that's what they do. And they start to praise the gods of silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And so the scene is set for a very defiant king. Now, outwardly, this looks like a a glorious event full of pomp and circumstance. And we know from history that many uh, Babylonian banquets looked like this. But this particular banquet is very defiant. And it's defiant for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's a cultural defiance. When the king threw this banquet, it was very unusual that he would invite both his wives and concubines. Culturally, it was not acceptable to invite both groups to your banquet for understandable reasons. And so he's defied his own culture by inviting his wives and concubines. Now, I think actually what he's engaged in here is a bit of an orgy. But not only is there cultural defiance at this point, there's a situational defiance. Basically, there's the context of the party. A week or ten days before this party, uh, Sirius the Persian, the Persian had brought his Medo, Medo-Persian army to within about a hundred kilometres of Babylon. And he decisively defeated the Babylon army. In other words, Babylon itself, the city, was under threat. It was just about to be ransacked. And in fact, by the end of this story, we'll find that it has been ransacked. And in the midst of that, he's defying everything that's sensible. He's not preparing his people. He's not preparing them for the defense of their city. He's defying it all and just throwing this party. But what's most remarkable about this uh, particular event is the defiance, his spiritual defiance. He takes the gold goblets taken from the temple and they drink wine from it. And not only that, they start to praise the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. This is spiritual defiance against the most high God. Now we had high hopes. Remember in chapter 4 we finished with Nebuchadnezzar Uh, recognizing God and glorifying him, glorifying the king of heaven because everything he does is right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. There was high hopes. But here we have a king, in contrast, who's deliberately defying the sovereign God. Now what happens next actually exposes the foolishness of his spiritual defiance. Uh, You might remember that uh, particular tale, The Emperor's New Clothes, uh, where two weavers uh, promise an emperor a new suit and they pretend to give him a new, new suit and the emperor puts on the new suit and he parades in front of everybody and everyone goes, oh, isn't that a brilliant new suit, when in fact it's actually nothing, there's no cloth involved at all, he's stark naked. And then there's a young man who uh, yells out, he's not wearing anything at all. Well, that's what's just about to happen. Daniel is that young man who's going to yell out, this king has no clothes. He's foolish. 
He's ridiculous because he's taken on the sovereign God. Well, while they're praising their man-made gods, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appear and write on the plaster on the wall. And the king watches this, and in verse 6, his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. Now, the translators are being very polite at this point, particular point. In fact, what the truth is here is that he soiled himself as a result of seeing these fingers writing on the wall. Well, in the midst of all that, he decides to call his enchanters and astrologers and diviners and the wise men of Babylon. And as they come in, they cannot read what is on the wall. They can't tell him what it's about. And so the king becomes even more terrified and his face becomes more pale and his nobles nobles become more baffled this defiance is starting to look ridiculous. The queen, or perhaps the queen mother, hearing the voices of the kings and nobles, comes into the banquet hall and recognises the king and then calls for Daniel and says, Daniel will be able to tell you what the writing on the wall means. He was able to tell King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in many ways, the queen's intervention at this point is a rebuke to the king. He can't work things out for himself. He's so afraid and so lost in his own power that he can't see a way forward. And so the queen convinces him to summon Daniel and Daniel comes. Now the way he treats Daniel is quite demeaning. You might remember that Daniel has been a key authority in Babylon. But when he greets Daniel, he greets him as someone who is an exile from Jerusalem. He kind of puts him in his place. He says, you don't really belong around here. And in response, Daniel kind of omits the usual politeness. And certainly when he's offered gifts from this king, he says, you keep your gifts. I don't want your gifts. They mean nothing to me. And then the king invites him to tell them, tell him what he means. What's interesting here is that Daniel then goes back into history and he talks about King Nebuchadnezzar and he relays again the story that we heard last week from chapter 4 where he talked about a king, Nebuchadnezzar, who had hardened his heart, who'd become arrogant with pride and he'd been deposed from his royal throne. He'd been given over uh, to the mind of an animal. He lived with wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. until he had acknowledged the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And then if you remember, he came back to being king. Well, having told that story, Daniel then says to him, Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself. Although you knew all this, you actually understood about this sovereign God, you understood what was taking place, And you, in defiance, have said you will not follow that God. In fact, you've drunk from the goblets and you've worshipped another God. You've praised the gods of of gold and bronze and iron and wood. And you did not honour God who holds your hands, your life in his hands. King Belshazzar has no clothes. 
He's foolish. He thought he was being defiant. He thought he was able to have, uh, be able to take on God. But in actual fact, he just looks foolish and ridiculous. Now as we think about that and think about what he's done, it's worth noting a couple of things. As Daniel comes and speaks to him, how does he try to correct him? Well, he says, first of all, that God is sovereign over all things. God is actually the one in charge here. You've completely missed it. God is the one who places you in power, placed uh, King Nebuchadnezzar in power. He is the one who is sovereign over all things and over all times. And then by retelling the story of Nebuchadnezzar and contrasting it with Belshazzar's own reign, he reminds him that you have set yourself up against God, the Lord of heaven. And you've done it by praising other gods. But as he unpacks this and as Daniel speaks to Belshazzar, he comes to the heart of the issue, and the issue is pride. He says, Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself. Even though you, did, you knew you did not honour God who holds, hand in your, holds your life in his hands. And if you like, I think this is the anatomy of spiritual defiance. A failure to recognise the sovereign God, a desire to follow another God, and at the heart of it is pride. Now, there's lots of ways of thinking about pride and thinking about how you might set yourself up from God. But the truth is, pride will get you nowhere. Uh, it's a condition that affects all of us. It doesn't matter whether you're poor or rich. It doesn't matter whether you're uneducated or educated. It doesn't matter whether you have a good family or a bad family, whether you've got good friends or terrible friends. Whatever, whoever you are, it's a human condition. And we all suffer with pride. And the problem with pride, as Spurgeon remind, reminds us in a great sermon he had on pride, is that it, it does nothing for you. It's a groundless thing. It's like standing on bubbles instead of standing on a rock. It's, a, it's like taking from the foundations of your house and trying to build a bigger house. You're just going to help the house collapse. It's a terrible thing. It destroys you. You can't build anything on it. Well, Belshazzar's pride is judged. His defiance of God is judged. And we see that um, as Daniel unfolds the meaning of the words that are written on the wall. And he says, God has numbered your days, your reign, and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And in fact, your kingdom will be destroyed. And so in verse 30, we find out that the king's kingdom is destroyed. Uh, and he is killed. And Darius the Mede takes over the kingdom um, and takes his kingdom from him. His defiance looks utterly foolish. Well, I guess the question is, how does this work for us? How does this apply to us? What does, how, do, how does this work in our lives? 
Um, some people have suggested, for example, that maybe we should be like Daniel and every time we see a kind of party like this one, we should run into it and tell people that the writing's on the wall and they will be under the judgment of God. And I, I don't think that's what it's telling us to do, but that's kind of one interesting interpretation. Although I must say, there are some um, opportunities which I think we should stand up and say things. I can remember being part of a Bucks party one night, me and a colleague, we were invited along to this Bucks party, and midway through the Bucks party, the guys, the, a leader, a youth leader in our church, decided to put on porn. And we just said, actually, no, that's, we're out of here. We're not, that's not on. Um, and so that was a moment of being able to say, actually, we're not going to be part of this. And I think there are occasions where we need to make stands like that, but I don't think that this, this is what it is about. I think that probably the first hearers of this story would have gained great comfort a great comfort that God is a sovereign God who deals with all despots, uh, that deals with everyone who defies God, every leader who defies God. Because in the midst of exile, they would have been persecuted, there would have been great difficulties, they were far away from home. And yet, the way that Belshazzar has been dealt with reminds them that God is faithful, that God is sovereign, that he is over all things. And for them, I think this story would have produced a great hope, and for us it can too, that no matter what time we are in history, no matter what place we are in history, God is over all things, God is sovereign, God will judge all things, he will bring all things into account. But I guess one of the things that struck me, one further thing that struck me about this passage is the whole issue of spiritual defiance. And it struck me that actually often we can have pride. Uh, that sometimes we're spiritually defiant in the pride of our own hearts, uh, in the way that we worship other things other than God. Um, when we came to the New Testament re reading, we were introduced to another banquet, uh, the, banqu uh, the parable of the great banquet in Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. And we hear of a great man who's preparing a great banquet and inviting many guests. And at the time, uh, he sends out invitations and he says, come, everything is now ready. And a group of people start to say, no, I'm not going to come. Now, I think the picture here is of particularly Jesus speaking to the Pharisees of the day, the people who are fairly religious. And the excuses that they give actually make sense. They're good things. Are they not bad things at all? Um, they begin to make excuses. Verse 18, um, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Well, that seems like a very reasonable thing to do. If you've bought a field, you need to go and see it. Jane and I have just uh, begun to purchase an apartment. When we did, we wanted to go and see it. That just kind of makes sense. Um, it also has some allusions to Old Testament laws here as well, and it kind of makes sense in that context as well. The other thing is that someone else is invited and they have five yoke of oxen, which means they were very wealthy and they were going to, to see them as well. And they say, oh, please excuse me. The third person that is mentioned in this parable is someone who's just got married. And uh, in those days, it probably was likely that he wouldn't have been able to bring his wife to the wedding. So it kind of makes sense. Oh, I've just got married. I want to spend time with my wife. These seem all like very reasonable things to be able to say no to to the banquet. But of course the problem here is 
these things are not showing humility. These things are saying, actually, the banquet's not as important as what I've got to do. I've got things that are far more important than coming to your banquet. Coming to the banquet that Jesus puts on. And so the servant is sent out, and he's sent out to go and look in the streets and the alleyways and to bring the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And of course the point here is those who are being invited are humble. Those who are invited recognise they don't deserve a seat at the table. Um, And that they are being invited to a great banquet. Now it's interesting to think about that banquet and to think about the richness of being invited to that banquet to have a seat at the table. To have a seat at the table, you cannot be spiritually defiant. In fact, the next passage will go on to say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And I think Jesus' point here is, as he's thinking about this banquet, as we're thinking about um, what it means to follow Jesus, to be Jesus' disciple means to put him first in everything. To give up everything to serve him, to follow him. To get rid of our spiritual defiance and to say, I'm yours. I know I have to change. You see, you can't come to Jesus without being changed. He doesn't leave you as you are. He's always going to change you. And that's what's so beautiful about being invited to the banquet. He's going to change you and transform you and give you a taste of what is good and rich and beautiful. And he's going to transform your sickness into health and your sadness into joy. He's going to do so many beautiful things for you. But to be at the table, you cannot be spiritually defiant. You have to come with humility and with open arms saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to let him disciple me. Ultimately, our spiritual defiance meant that Jesus humbled himself And the hand that wrote on that wall became the hand that was nailed to the cross. And the spiritual defiance that we showed was taken to the cross. And the judgment that we deserved fell on Jesus. So that you and I could come to the banquet. And so tonight, I want to invite you, come to the banquet. Don't be spiritually defiant. Give everything to Jesus.
for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.